According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. You may join me, if you would, in the book of Philippians. We'll pick up where we left off on Sunday. We're also going to have questions and answers tonight, so look forward to those. We've got some follow-ups from last week and really follow-ups from uh, two or three weeks ago. So I want to get right to those as well. Um, Before we do anything, though, it would do us no good whatsoever to sit here in carnality for the next hour. So let's uh, take a moment in silent prayer to confess our sins, to humble ourselves, to set aside our distractions, to ask the Father to bless our study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace provision. We thank you for the blessings we have of confession of sin. That if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so here we are. Father, we approach your throne of grace on this basis. Not worthy ourselves, but worthy in your Son. And we call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding, to teach us from your truth tonight. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we have um, the first question I want to get to tonight is one that was uh, still pending from before my vacation. And I apologize because I meant to follow up on this last week. But this was with respect to uh, Hebrews 8 and Hebrews 10. It, it seems like the quotations are slightly different. Why is that? Why are the quotations different? And are they different in the Greek as well as the, in the English? And yes, they are different in the Greek. Um, so in, in Hebrews 8, we have a much longer quotation that comes out of the, the New Covenant uh, from Jeremiah chapter 31, and it starts in verse 10 uh, and carries on in verse 11 and in verse 12, and each of those verses follows in exact order the, the verses from Jeremiah 31. In fact, the Greek is word for word from the Septuagint of, of Jeremiah 31. And so um, you have in verse 10... The part there that says, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. Um, I will be their God and they will be my people. And then verse 11, and then it's not until you get down to verse 12, that it says, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And that's word for word from the Septuagint, which is slightly um, at odds with the Hebrew uh, of, of that text uh, from the Masoretic manuscripts in, in any event. Then when we get over to Hebrews chapter 10, it is, it is greatly abbreviated. And that's really the answer to the question as far as why is it different. It's different because it's greatly abbreviated. And in, in his purpose in chapter 10, he's only selecting two items from the larger quote. So he starts by saying, um, the Holy Spirit testifies to us after saying, for after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. So he just gives one short snippet from the, the New Covenant introduction, really. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And, and that's the big deal of what he's trying to emphasize here in chapter 10 is the forgiveness of sins. So their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And so in verse 16 you got a quote from one verse and in verse 17 you got another snippet from another verse. And this is just simply, it's not a direct quotation, but it is the author's way to, to abbreviate, to abbreviate 
a much larger uh, quote. And so that's, that's really the answer there. There are some commentaries that address this, including um, uh, the two halves here in the New International Com uh, Greek Testament commentary. He says the two halves of Jeremiah 31-34 are telescoped. And uh, he says that the expression there about their lawless deeds uh, being added in compensation for the omission of the, other, the, uh, the, the uh, earlier phrase about mercy. And I thought that was interesting. Um, the word biblical commentary likewise said, the writer selected for quotation only salient features of Jeremiah 31. In his free repetition of the oracle, two blessings of the new covenant are underscored. God will inscribe his laws on the heart. And I think that was just by way of introduction. I don't think that he was doing that to underscore or to emphasize. He just used that by way of introduction to put the readers into a new covenant um, way of thinking. Because what he really was stressing was he will no longer remember their sins and their misdeeds. That's the, that's the emphasis on that. So, um, Anyway, does that answer your question, what you were driving at there? Okay. Then I will consider that closed business and uh, recolor this purple instead of red. And I will stop thinking about it until, until we get to chapter 8 and, and chapter 10 because those are, those are powerful and we've got to deal with those in the context of our Hebrews class. And I'm really looking forward to doing that because there's, there's so much bad information out there about the new covenant, the new covenant with Israel, and then trying to, uh, trying to steal it or trying to abscond with it or claim it uh, for a church application. They do it all in the wrong way. So we're going we're gonna to emphasize that powerfully when we get to that point in the book of Hebrews. All right, then uh, I guess we can move on to some new business. Bill had a question he sent by email dealing with Jude 8. Why were Satan and Michael arguing about the, uh, the body of Moses? Um, I don't know. <laughs> Verse 9 says so. Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, do not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay? And that's the only hint we have anywhere in the Bible about that event. Now there are some legends, and there are some traditions, there's some apocryphal books, there's, uh, there's the Assumption of Moses and the Testament of Moses, and some people think those are the same book anyway, and others think that no, they're separate books, and no one can really agree. And the end of that book, by the way, we don't even have. We just have authors in later centuries that refer back to it from when they used to have it. So anyway, the whole point being is these false teachers, uh, they revile angelic majesties and not even Michael dared to do such a thing when he was disputing with Satan. And so that's the application that's to be made there. And if there's more detail um, to that, um, God didn't see fit to include that in the, in the Bible. So uh, when we're not in class, we can waste some time if you like. I could tell you some more of those legends. They're kind of they're kind of hilarious, but <clears throat> yeah. Deuteronomy 34 is when is uh, when um, Moses died and God buried him. Deuteronomy 34 and verse six, and didn't tell anybody where. God buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial place to this day. And usually the traditions, the the rabbinic traditions, were because there would have been a tendency to make the grave a pilgrimage site, to make it an idolatry site, or to, to find relics and to lift it up and, and all of that. So God took care of that, buried him somewhere that nobody knows, and, uh, and that's a good thing. So. All right, 
So that's our old business then, and we can take some fresh questions. The microphone runner is ready to go. We have a hand raised there. I told you last week to raise your hand faster, and uh, we have one obedient person in the church. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Actually, it's not a question. Can you make the Can you speak in the microphone, bigger? please? Uh, no, I don't want to do that. Okay. Make the fonts on the screen bigger. Some of us just can't read those. Yes. Logos Bible Software has an amazing capacity to um, that's, that's wonderful. And increase. The one on the left, same thing. Now, this one may not. It, yeah, it, it was, and then it went back. Okay. If you can. If I can. That's, that's all I want. Wow. <laughs> all right. You're welcome. And you don't even have to move closer to the screen. You, can, you may sit right there. All right, question over here on the front row. Um, I was reading Job 3. I think we talked about that Sunday. Uh, Job 3 in the NASB, it says, uh, why, did not, why did I not die at birth, come forth uh, from the womb and expire? Now, uh, Job 3.11 in the King James Version says, uh, why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? So those are two drastically different interpretations or translations or whatever from the, the two different versions. That being said, my question is, how do we come up, how have we gotten to the point to where we have th this vast difference in the translations uh, of the Bible? How, did, how were each individual one translated, transliterated, whatever? Well, give up the ghost, I mean, that's, that's kind of fun. You know, uh, but language changes, you know, and so Elizabethan English from the 1611, you know, or even the 1789, you know, the, the, the various revisions of the King James Bible over the years, um, language changes. And so there'll be different idioms and different expressions that'll be used. Uh, I don't think they're that vastly different either. Uh, why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly is essentially the same thing that it says here is the same thing it says in the Hebrew. Why did I not die at birth? With a footnote, from the womb, come forth from the womb and expire. So, I mean, it's essentially the same thing. Even earlier than that, he, if he couldn't die at birth, he, was, he wanted to die on the night he was conceived. Um, not just his birthday, but his conception night. And uh, in verse 3 there. So, um, yeah, there was a lot of lamenting there that, that takes place. And so if you think that your life is useless and you'd be better off uh, stillborn or, or not even conceived, that's kind of the thought that Joel was expressing there in that chapter. Um, to follow up real quick on the term from the womb, mm -hmm. my thinking is I'm, I'm wanting to understand how, if it was used any different uh, in the Hebrew than how we use it today, and this might be a poor example, but I always say, uh, as an example, a gunshot wing, rang out from the bell tower. Of course, we would know, okay, somebody fired a shot from the bell tower. They didn't step outside of the bell tower, then fire the shot, then go back into the bell tower. So from the, in that context, would seem to be different. Well, let me rephrase it. I just want to know, did they use it any different in the Hebrew from the womb as we would use it today. No, this is kind of from, I mean, there are Greek preposition differences, apo and ek, for example, that are different from away from or out of. 
but uh, the, the simple may in the Hebrew is from the womb, that somebody was in the womb came out. And, and actually it's a neat, uh, the idea of dying in the womb means that you're alive in the womb and then you die. So that's, that's a good argument for um, what we talk about with the abortion question and things like that. That it is the person in the womb, it's not just a tissue waiting to become a person once they're born. Okay. Yeah, it's a good, good passage for that too. All right, back row on the other side. We're going to be ecumenical and cross the aisle, bipartisan. Back row on the right-hand side there. Yes, ma'am. Not, not a deep question, but for oh, me, good. I just want to know about, um, about um, Solomon. Solomon? Uh-huh. Yeah, he had all those wives and concubines. And I heard some preacher um, mention that that during his reign, babies were, you know, given up, to, died. They they offer the babies to their gods. Correct. Is that right? That is in the scriptures. That's is right. He he did that, worship Molech and did child sacrifice yeah, in the so high place. He was involved in all that bad stuff. Is there anything that um, says that he made it to the? Did he get to heaven or not? Oh yes, he is a believer. There's no question that he's a believer. Yes. Solomon is a believer, and that is, it is a, a remarkable thing. Now, some people don't want to handle that, and so because they've got a theology that doesn't like that idea, but uh, eternal security means eternal security, and you're saved, you're saved, and even if at the end of your life you're... you're uh, when was he saved? Before all those women? Oh, or? yeah, yeah, yeah. Saved in his youth, saved from his childhood. In fact, David commented upon that, that from his youth he was a man of wisdom, he was grounded in the Word of God, and I think we have that uh, throughout the first nine chapters of Proverbs, that really Solomon was the author of those first nine chapters, but essentially he was recording what David and Bathsheba taught him in his childhood, in his early years. Thank you. Uh-huh. All right, up to the front row then. We'll get, we're going to give uh, our final question here to, uh, to Chuck. <coughs> Do I just get one? Depends. How fast is it? Okay, so in John 19, verse 30, uh-huh. it says, When Jesus, therefore, had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And my understanding is that's tetelestai. Yes. And my question is, is there some grammatical construction, or whatever you call it, that indicates that it was finished at that point? Yes, that's Or perfect... does it mean that it was about to be finished after he physically died? No, that's that's that perfect participle. It, I mean, tetelestai. It's, it's a perfect active indicative, right? So, it is finished. It has been complete and stands complete and is eternally complete, in a perfect tense verb. Now, there there are idioms where a person could speak of something as being essentially over, and so he counts it as if it is over. But that's not in use here, and that's really not often employed anyway. So, no, he he shouts that out in victory and. And it's, it's interesting the things that he says leading up to that, including I am thirsty. Um, you know, there's nothing indicating that he was about to be thirsty, so he anticipated being thirsty. You know, he was thirsty. And then uh, after the sour wine, then he says it is finished. And so, um, no. And, and that's, that's powerful because we understand it's the spiritual death of Christ on the cross that is the work of our redemption, not his physical death. And uh, the wages of sin is death. That's spiritual death. Adam didn't drop dead physically when he ate that fruit. Um, it's spiritual death. And so the, the provision of Jesus Christ by faith is spiritual life. 
not physical life. And so I think in all these things, now he did then, because there was additional work to be done, he then submitted to physical death as well, and then experienced physical resurrection. But that's a totally different doctrine, unrelated to the redemption, which was brought about by the spiritual death in Christ. Okay, thanks. Uh The other thing is, I think a fairly quick question relating to something you said this morning. When you took us to that verse in Ecclesiastes, you said, now now don't use this human viewpoint as a verse to claim because it was written in human viewpoint. Right. How much is that applicable to all of the book? The entire book, I know. Every book, if you're reading Ecclesiastes, you got to know it's the book of human viewpoint. It's the book of wisdom. It's, it's wisdom from a human perspective apart from God's revelation. And so it's just examining things under the sun and looking around. And so if you find something there that just doesn't seem right, it's probably not. <laughs> okay, so compare Scripture to Scripture and ask yourself, so men prepare a meal for enjoyment. Well, yeah, that seems right. And we have other verses in the Bible that would agree with that, such as the provision of food to be enjoyed. And we showed you First Timothy in that. Uh, wine makes life merry. I would agree with that. And we have other Scriptures as well that point to that, the purpose for wine, Psalm 104. And, and so we can agree with that. Too much wine, of course, is drunkenness, and that's, that's wrong. But then the final phrase, money is the answer to everything. Wait a minute. Does that sound right? No. Okay. And can we find other scriptures that would support that? Or do we find other scriptures that would attack that? That says money is not the answer. So it's a good verse. Um, uh, the verse after is too about not cursing your king and things like that. Um, and so Ecclesiastes is a remarkable book. And the fact that God let it be written by Solomon in his carnality at the end of his life, I think is extraordinary because it's, it's, it, it again shows how far a believer can fall, especially when you should know better, when you've had teaching. So that's a good question there. I like, yeah, that's Ecclesiastes 10.19. You can uh, print it out, put it on your refrigerator, and, uh, and then spark a lot of conversation when people come over and ask what that verse is about, that uh, money is the answer to everything because it's not. <laughs> All right. Well, join me then in Philippians chapter 1. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate the microphone running. We are looking at Paul's well-known imprisonment. And the fact that his imprisonment was well-known was an effect, not because, of the um, greater progress for the gospel. So in Philippians 1, we're looking at verses 12, 13, and 14. And uh, I'm going to build on where we left it on Sunday. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, the things according to me, my things, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Not the lesser progress, not uh, what you might expect, but for the greater progress of the gospel. So that, so that, purpose clause, or the result, the outcome, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And so what's described in verse 13 is a consequence of what happens in verse 12, not the other way around. And I think that uh, folks read it backwards and they get it, the issue confused that somehow celebrity becomes, uh, becomes a tool. That if you have celebrity, if you are well known, then, then now... 
because you have celebrity, you might have an open door for more fruitful ministry. You might have open door for more progress of the gospel or other things. You know, if your pastor was more famous, then he would be able to, to do more for Jesus in, in, in that kind of thing. And it's backwards. It's absolutely backwards. The progress for the gospel is what caused the, uh, the imprisonment to be well known. And not, not just the fact of the imprisonment, but the reality of the imprisonment. The fact that those chains were in Christ. It became undeniable, even the unbelievers. I don't presume that, well maybe there was a, a saved praetorian guard, but I think by and large the vast majority of those praetorian soldiers were pagans. Alright? And they started watching what Paul was doing and they started to see something. It's like the centurion at Christ's crucifixion that said, surely this is the Son of God, right? And all of a sudden it became clear, this is not normal. <laughs> Something's happening here. And um, <coughs> we see it described here in this way. All right. So let me get ahead here to, I think it's this slide here. Pro, point two in the outline. <coughs> Progress in the gospel. Well, first of all, I can even back up and give you point one. We got some visitors tonight and folks that are here for their first time. Um, we basically broken down chapter one into three parts. We had a salutation in verses one and two, and then after that, the three parts, verses three through eleven, with he who began a good work in you, verses twelve through eighteen, with my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, and it's leading to the third portion of the chapter, where we got the great memory verse to uh, to live as Christ and to die as gain. So we're going to handle the three sections of the chapter in that way. So 12 through 18, what we're starting now, what we started last week, um, is this new section here called the occasion for writing section. And it centers on my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And I love this. I love teaching this. I love thinking about this because there's, there's two things as a pastor when I get a phone call or when, I, when I'm listening to somebody and, and their complaints and whatever else that's bothering them, all right? And it, it centers on um, my circumstances, all right, that's usually where it starts. And then oftentimes it goes to, uh, well, just how things have turned out, just how things are going, how things happen. And it just seems like uh, if, if things are totally just happening in, in ways you don't expect, that that's a problem, all right? Well, this passage says, no, it's a good thing because God is the God of the circumstances. God is the God who's in charge of everything, and whatever it is he's assigned to you, it might not be good, but it will work together for good. So don't complain about the circumstance, celebrate it, and, and start praying about how God's going to work that out. And I love the fact this language is great. It doesn't matter if it's Greek or English or whatever we're speaking. The concept is there, I think, and it spans any language. The idea of, of, um, of what is happening, okay? If something happens... Well, who did that? Who caused that, right? It just, well, it, it, it just happened, okay? And, and people want to talk in some kind of an abstract, third-person kind of a, a thing. It just happened. No, it didn't just happen. God ordered the circumstances. And where you are and what you're dealing with and all these other things are part of the conditional circumstances, the field of service that God has chosen to place you in. So don't just mumble over the things that happen. And then here's the other thing. In English especially it's fun because we connect the, the word happen or happenstance or uh, think about 
people that are totally enslaved to what happens, and that's what drives their happiness, right? They're either happy or they're unhappy, and all of it is driven by the things that are happening, as if we're just slaves to what's happening, okay? And the Scripture says no. Scripture says no, our happiness, our joy is in Christ. And the happiness we have, the makarios joy that we have in the Word of God, totally separated from our circumstances. We can, we can be in the worst of circumstances and have the greatest of happiness because we're in the Word of God. That's the thing. Rejoicing in Christ. So uh, to me, the idea of happenstance and what's happening and the things that are happening to me and you don't understand what, what's happening and whatever, well, no, I probably don't. I've never been pregnant or whatever. You know, I, I've, I've never walked in your shoes, but here's, uh, here's what I do know. That, that God is aware of everything and He designed it exactly for His good pleasure to glorify His Son. And so this is uh, what He's going to bring about. So, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the Gospel. His occasion for writing is a personal testimony to Romans 8.28. All things work together for good. His circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the Gospel. You know, if you would have asked him a month earlier, hey Paul, you want to go to jail this month? He probably would have, you know, I expect normal people would have said, no, no thanks. Um, You know, it's just, it's not the thing you want to do. Especially when you've got stuff you've got to do. You've got ministry, you've got pastors to train, you've got books of the Bible to write, you've got, I mean, there's just stuff you've got to get done. But look at how many books of the Bible he got written while he was in jail. Okay? He got more done when God put him there. And that's a blessing. So um, circumstances, whatever they are, God's in charge of them. We can't control them. God does. And uh, so instead of grumbling about how we want them to be different, thank Him for what they are and learn what we're supposed to learn along the way. So, uh, and then when things just turn out the way they turn out, you know, what do you do? Do you celebrate your good fortune? You know? Or do you thank, do you thank the God of luck? You know? No. Okay? It's, it's, it's Calvinist luck. It's called sovereignty. God's in charge. Okay? And we rejoice in that. We absolutely rejoice in, in what He provides. So um, the things with respect to you, yeah, it gets personal. Sure, it gets personal. But it's also universal because all testing is common to man. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm dealing with things that are unique to me, but they're not really unique to me. God knows what He's doing. And there are brothers and sisters that can come alongside that can pray for me and, and do all this. God is the true designer of the progressive movement. I had fun with that. Because the idea of progress, it would turn out for the greater progress of the gospel. God's a God of progress. And God expects us to progress. God expects us to build upon what we've achieved. And, and if we don't, somebody else will. And it may be. I mean, that's how we had it described for the Corinthians. Paul planted the, the foundation and then another built upon it. And uh, that's how it works. We should be making progress in the Christian way of life. All right, which gets us to point two. Progress in the gospel is what caused Paul's imprisonment to become well-known, not the other way around. It's not the fact that he was a celebrity. They weren't spreading rumors saying, ooh, do you know who we have in our jail? Ooh, I mean, you know, if you do have a celebrity in your jail, then yeah, word gets around and and you find out about it. But um, that's not what happened here, okay? Because Paul was not a celebrity. It's not like he was well-known for being, you know, Saul of Tarsus and, and whatever. Not among Roman circles. He would have been known as a traitor to Pharisees and to, to in Jewish circles, but among the Praetorian Guard, they would, you know, Saul who? Tarsus what? 
They wouldn't have cared that Saul of Tarsus was in their jail. Um, no, but because the greater progress of the gospel was happening, the guards were noticing. Something's happening here. We don't see this normally. What's happening here? And so his chains were in Christ. And that's what became well known, that his chains were in Christ. Paul's chains became manifest, phaneros, manifest in Christ. And anything that's manifest, when God phaneros, when God shines the spotlight, when we see it because it's all lit up, that gets our attention. What God makes manifest, we need to pay attention to. Manifest in Christ. (coughs) All right. This is where we spent the bulk of our time on Sunday when God causes something to appear, that apparent thing leaves us without excuse. I mean, if it's apparent and God made it apparent, then we're expected to pay attention, right? If an angel appears to you, that's, there's a reason to pay attention. And that was Zacharias when, when the angel appeared to him and he didn't want to believe what, what he was being told. Well, then why am I appearing to you? Okay, I'm here appearing to you. Listen to what it is that I have to say. Because as, as Gabriel said, I'm from the presence of God and this is what you need to know. Uh, creation is, is the manifest testimony to God's existence. That's Romans 1. And in all these other places, I think that the deeds of the flesh are evident, right? The deeds of the flesh are evident. We looked at that in Galatians chapter 5. So these are all the phaneros, phanerao terms. And um, we finished with all those? Or we did not finish all those? How far did we get with those? Colossians? Oh, and that's almost the whole list then. Okay, because Galatians 5.19, the deeds of the flesh are, uh, are evident. Uh, Ephesians 5.13. Let me just make sure we covered these already and then we can gain new ground. Um, all things become visible when they are exposed by the light for everything that becomes visible is light. And so, yeah, and so we are expected to walk in the light. We are expected to walk manifest before one another, manifest before God, manifest before the world that sees that we're different, that we don't walk the way we used to walk. And, uh, and so, uh, in fact, we don't participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. That's uh, verse 11 of Ephesians 5. So yeah, we dealt with that. Um, all right. I should have paid more attention to what I was preaching on Sunday. I don't remember what we covered. Philippians 1.13, of course, is our passage tonight. Philippians 2.15 Another use, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves, demonstrate yourself, docimazo yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you, and this is it, you appear as lights in the world. And so if, if folks are looking at you and they don't see anything different from you compared to that crooked and perverse generation we live among, well, that's a problem. That's not a good thing. There should be something different about the choices we make and the lifestyle we pursue and, the, and the, uh, just everything. Our whole outlook on, uh, on this world should be different from the crooked and perverse generation. If not, that's a problem, as it says there. All right, and then Colossians... 126 and Colossians 3 4.
And that will wrap up our fanarao survey. Fino, fanarao, those are two verbs, and fanaras is an adjective. Uh, all of these related one with another. Colossians 1.26, the, um, with respect to mystery doctrine, with respect to the church age, and what we take for granted sometimes, we've got to quit taking for granted. Uh, when he talks about the church, in verse 24 he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do share uh, my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. And there's a whole realm of doctrine there, let me tell you. Because Christ's afflictions are, are not finished yet. The body of Christ will, can, will finish the afflictions of Christ, and that's throughout the church age. And Paul says, hey, I'm, I'm carrying my end of the, of the, of the load here. Um, of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit. So whatever your gift is, whatever your ministry is, when you're pursuing your stewardship function, it's not for you, it's for others in the body of Christ so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested, that's our term, to His saints. See, mystery doctrine was not revealed in the Old Testament. You can search high and low. You're not going to find the body of Christ in the Old Testament. You're not going to find the bride. You're not going to find the church. You're not going to find Jews and Gentiles baptized together in union with Christ. That's all mystery. That's all new. It's a new creation. Did not exist in the Old Testament. When Jesus promised it, He said, on this rock I will build my church. It was not yet in existence when Jesus made that promise to, uh, to Peter in Matthew 16. And so it was hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to His saints. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery, among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. How many Old Testament believers had Christ in them, the hope of glory? None. Zero. No Old Testament saint had Christ in them, the hope of glory. Okay? That requires a victorious, risen, seated Savior with a uh, Holy Spirit having been sent then to baptize the body of Christ into union with Him. No Old Testament believer had that. So if you're reading a commentary that's telling you that Israel was the Old Testament church or that the church is New Testament Israel or that we replace Israel or any of that garbage, it's, it's a waste of time. This passage proves it. <coughs> All right. <coughs> Chapter 3. Colossians 3, 4. And this is fun. Because uh, you might have seen the email, we're hoping to have a baptism. We haven't had a baptism since last August. It's been about a year now. And uh, this is the passage we recite every time I bring somebody up out of the water. If you've ever watched one of my baptisms or experienced one of my baptisms, you know that I've never left anybody under the water. Okay? Everyone I dunk, I bring back up again. And there's a point to that because Christ didn't stay in the grave, did He? Right? And that's what we portray. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ. And so we have the blessing then. And so when everybody comes up out of the water, we recite Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, if or since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. That's our position. No Old Testament believer could do this. Okay? 
Because Christ, although He was with God and although He was God, He was not seated at His right hand in victory with His uh, greater name inheritance that we're learning about now in, in the book of Hebrews. He had not yet achieved that victory. And so uh, this is what we do now. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. No Old Testament believer could claim that. They could be saved. They had eternal life. They were going to go to Abraham's bosom when they died. But they were not dead in Christ. They were not buried in Christ. They were not raised in Christ. They were not glorified in Christ. They were not seated at Christ's right hand even as Christ is seated at the Father's right hand. All of this is positional truth for the church age. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life is revealed then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. And that's not our apocalypto revelation term, that's our phonorao manifest term. That Christ will be manifested, we will be manifested. And that's what we're looking forward to in that great day of glory. When, uh, when Christ is manifested, we will be manifested, and uh, oh that it were today. Alright? And it could be. So, those are all the aspects. When God causes something to appear, that apparent thing leaves us without excuse. And those appearances, God is making a point to shine the light on realms of doctrine, to shine the light on principles, to shine the light on people or on ministries or on things. And anywhere that God Himself is manifesting that light, if He is shining that spotlight, if He is making something apparent, then we're accountable. We need to pay attention and identify with what it is that He's spotlighting so that uh, we can share in that work. We are His fellow uh, spotlights in that regard. All right. Because God is manifesting through us. We didn't see those Second Corinthians verses, did we? Uh, we got bogged down on the, uh, on the sweet aroma of chapter 2. I know that's what we did. Let me back up a little bit because this is important also, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5. And I, I know it's fun when you talk about smells. Smells are fun. And in chapter 2 we have smells. We are a sweet aroma. And we dealt with that. God is manifesting through us that aroma. And then in chapter 3 there's more manifestations being manifested that you are a letter of Christ cared for by us, written not with ink but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. So there's a manifestation there, okay? Are you with me still? Then we get to chapter 4 and we get to chapter 5. Chapter 4 and chapter 5. Chapter 4 talks about being persecuted but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. You say, well, that's no fun. I don't like that. I don't want to go through that. Well, too bad. Because this is what the Father does to manifest the life of Christ in us. This is why we have this treasure in earthen vessels. I don't like having my treasure in earthen vessels. <laughs> you know? Why do I have uh, uh, migraines? Why do I have allergies? Why do I have, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Just list all the things you don't like about your physical body and your bodily condition. Well, add to that list and quit griping about it. The reason why we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. 
Praise God that we have this weak thing, this body of dust, this decrepit thing. So we are afflicted in every way but not crushed, uh, perplexed but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. And here's why. Always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. See, when we live in that daily hope of resurrection, then that's a testimony. That's a testimony, especially if we're living a bunch by you know a bunch of unbelievers that are terrified to them. Matters of life and death are the the, the most serious thing they can think about. That you know you know they want to they're trying to stretch every last little bit out of their physical life, and and we're just happy to be done with it and move on to the next one. Okay, you know I, I'm not going to miss this old thing. I'm looking forward to the new one, and uh, that's uh, that's going to be the blessing. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. And, and it, I don't know, the, the message of resurrection, the message of Christianity, we, we serve as living sacrifices. To me it's, it's glorious. There's nothing like it. Alright, and then chapter 5. So yes, we prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. We are of good courage, I say. This is what it means to be walking by faith and not by sight. You know, hey, this body is torn down. We got another one on order. It's ready to go. I can move in today. My bags are packed. I don't. I don't know about you, but I'm I'm ready to go. That's the the thing there. And and we're of good courage. I say, prefer rather to be absent from the body and be at home with the Lord. So therefore, we have as our ambition. This is Second uh, Corinthians five nine. Whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. When you're studying the doctrine of appearances and the things that appear, pay attention to the things that are appearing here and now in time, but never forget that there's an appearance scheduled. You and I have to make an appearance at the judgment seat of Christ. And that, that could be today. We could be face to face today if that trumpet sounds. And so it says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men so we, we have the fear of the Lord, we're persuading, we're giving the gospel, we're, we're, we have an apologetic ministry, whatever we have. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are also made manifest in your consciences. And this is, uh, to me, just another realm of, of application to be made as well. That we're, we're serving in the sight of God. So if, if somebody thinks I'm a fool, oh well, think me a fool, I'm serving God. And, and, and I'm manifest in that way. And, uh, and so, you know, we're not again commending ourselves to you, but we're giving you an occasion to be proud of us so, so that uh, you'll have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. You know, maybe uh, are you embarrassed of who your pastor is and you wish he was more famous and on the radio and writing books and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, well, you know, guess what? You know, just commending in the sight of God to your conscience, to everybody else's conscience. And, you know, if I'm beside myself, well, okay. If I'm out of my mind, great. If, uh, if I'm of sound mind, well, that's, that's great too. And it's all for the glory of Jesus Christ. It's a fun chapter to work your way through these, uh, these verses here. But the, I think the whole application there with the, with the phanerao tech, uh, terminology and the manifest terminology of what's phaneros, um, hey, you know, we're manifest to God and that's what it's about. And so uh, that's who we answer to and that's who we serve and uh, we can take it from there. Alright, now I think we've covered the passages that are on that slide including 
the deeds of the flesh that are evident in Galatians 5.9, and the Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. All right, so we're cool. We can move on. Praetorian guard. Praetorian guard. This verse has gotten more, there's been more ink spilled, I think. Uh, things written, things talked about. It's been cussed and discussed for thousands of years, probably, since it was first written. It does not mean that Paul was in Rome, okay? Although so many people camp on it and demand, oh, see, this is proof. He must have been in Rome because that's where the Praetorian was. That's where the Praetorian Guard was. Yes, there was an elite bodyguard that was assigned to Caesar that protected Caesar. Uh, but beyond that elite bodyguard, there were additional guards, and they were all referred to as Praetorian. And uh, not only in Rome, but in every royal residence. And so uh, that would include Jerusalem, that would include Caesarea, that would include Ephesus, and yes, of course, it would include Rome, all right? It cannot conclusively prove any geographic location. So just because his imprisonment has become well-known to all the Praetorian Guard, don't just camp on that and say, well, see, that proves that this letter was written from Rome. And that's, I think that's where most of the legends came from, most of the traditions came from, and of course there was a desire in the early church, or was it not in the early church, but there was a desire in the 5th century and beyond, the, the, the Bishop of Rome had a great desire to try to puff himself up as much as possible. And uh, all the legends about Peter being the first pope, and all the legends about Paul being imprisoned in Rome, and all the legends about these books being written from Rome, all of that came together to try to promote the idea that the bishop of Rome was the supreme bishop and uh, gave him sovereignty over all the other bishops of all the other cities uh, throughout the, the Roman Empire. But be that as it may, if you look at everywhere in the New Testament where this word is found, such as Matthew 27, Mark 15, John 18, John 19, or Acts 23, 35, everywhere else in the New Testament this word is found, it never applies to Rome. Not once. Unless it's here, okay? Which I don't think it is. All the references in the, the Gospels are to Jerusalem, okay? And we should be familiar with these. This, this is where Christ was brought before Herod, where he was uh, put on trial after he already had his Jewish trials. How many trials did Jesus go through? Six. And uh, we covered them in nitty-gritty detail in our Life of Christ series. Most of them were illegal. Uh, and then after they convicted him in the illegal proceedings, they decided to try to find some legal proceedings to finish their dastardly deed. But anyway, Matthew 27, 27. Is he in Rome here? No, he's in, he's in Jerusalem. And so uh, Pilate tries to release him and then releases Barabbas instead because they keep demanding it. And... Uh, I find this to be curious. I find this to be actually prophetic. I think it's a foreshadowing of the uh, demand to release Satan out of the abyss and the demand for Jesus to get off the throne of David and for the final Gog-Magog rebellion at the end of the millennium. But anyway, uh, release Barabbas, release Barabbas. What then shall I do with the Christ? You know, crucify him. And uh, so he released Barabbas and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole cohort around him. 
They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. So clearly this is a residence, it's a royal residence. It is, a, it is the, the place for the Roman governor, the Roman uh, sovereign official is here. The one that represents Caesar is here and his guards are here. And they put the crown of thorns on him and they mocked him and they, they did what they did. All right, and that's parallel, by the way, in Mark 15. It's parallel in, in John, although there's more detail in John, John 18. In fact, you get the most references here in, in the Gospel of John. John 18, verses 28 and 33. Um, they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. Caiaphas was the high priest. That was the final of his, of his Jewish trials. He had to go before <coughs> both Annas and Caiaphas in three different hearings. And then when they decided they wanted him dead, they had to take him to Pilate because uh, the Romans did not allow the Jews to, uh, to execute capital punishment. So they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. These very religious fellows, of course, they, uh, they're very concerned. They want to stay ritually pure so they can take part in the Passover dinner, um, which, you know, isn't that hilarious? They're, 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 they're murdering the Son of God. <laughs> they're murdering the Messiah. But they want to stay ritually pure in, uh, in their, keep their hands clean, as they, uh, as they put him to death. And so Pilate has to go out to answer them. And uh, um, he says, uh, well, what's he guilty of? What's the charge? I love this. And they answered and said, well, if he was not an evildoer, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Obviously he's guilty, that's why we're here. Just, just do what we tell you. So Pilate says, well, you take him yourself. Judge him according to your law. You've got a court, you've got law. And the Jews say, well, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. And that's when he knows, uh-oh, something's up here. So Pilate then, in verse 33, enters back into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said, are you the king of the Jews? And he interrogates him even more. Uh, it's mentioned again down in, uh, yeah, there, verse 33. So in verse 28, verse 33. And then in chapter 19, the last use of it here, um, he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So the, the term praetorium does not have to be Rome. And I think this is proof. I mean, look at all these uses here. and We're talking about Jerusalem. And then when Paul is arrested and he's taken to Caesarea in Acts 23.35. Acts 23.35. And again, there's soldiers and uh, there's a plot uh, they're going to ambush Paul along the way. And so, um, in fact, in verse 16, the son of Paul's sister heard of the ambush, and so he entered into the barracks and he told Paul, this is how we know Paul has a sister. And um, anyway, so then they get, to, they get to move him to Caesarea. In verse 23, uh, two of the centurions said, get 200 soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. And basically, he's in protective custody. They're going to keep him alive long enough to, to uh, appear before the, the governor. And all of this is being uh, recorded. And you get down to verse 35. Um, he said, I will give you a hearing after your accusers arrive also. And so giving orders for him to be kept in Herod's praetorium in Caesarea. 
Okay, we're not in Rome yet. There were praetoriums all over the place, wherever the governor had an official residence and he had an official guard. That's, uh, that was their headquarters. And so that's the point there. All right. Verses 14 through 17 then. Let's see what's going to happen next here in uh, Philippians. Paul's progress in the gospel and his well-known imprisonment produced goads to action among two widely divergent groups of believers. Paul's progress in the gospel and well-known imprisonment produced goads to action. You know, what is it that lights a fire under somebody? What is it that takes a sharp stick and jabs them in the, in the hindquarters? Okay? That's a goad. That's the goad to action. And in, 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 for different believers, it's different things. It's different events, it's different doctrines, it's different teachings, it's different circumstances. I think, um, you know, for Jesus it was age 12. And he just came under such absolute conviction. He said, I must be about my father's business. And he hit, there was a visit to the temple and his mom and dad didn't understand it. But he was coming under a conviction at that time that, uh, you know, man, he's 12 already. He's wasted enough time. Let's get to it. <laughs> okay? And he was a little early. That's, that's the nature of youthful exuberance. All right? But for other believers, it comes at different times. And at some point you realize, you know what? I've, I've frittered away enough of my Christian walk. I, I, need to, I need to get serious about serving the Lord. I need to lay up gold, silver, and precious stones in heaven because I've already got enough wood, hand, stubble up there. Let's, let's get something positive on the ledger. And, uh, you know, God's got a plan for me. And His plan for me is not, He didn't give me the spiritual gift of, of uh, pew sitting. <laughs> you know, I can sit in a pew and that's my gift. And, uh, you know, and, 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 and we're not evaluated based on uh, gold stars for attendance or how many classes we listen to. There's, there's not a quiz. Jesus doesn't ask us what we know um, or what we learned. He's, he's going to evaluate what we've done. And that's the criteria there is the, is the production. And so maybe it's a circumstance. Maybe it's someone that uh, is, is put in jail. This is what's happening here. Paul's sent to jail and it's lighting a fire. It's motivating two different groups and in one group uh, is, is not good. Okay? So let's, let's look at these verses here. Um, it says in verse 14, Most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And that's surprising. That's, that's the same surprising twist, surprising outcome that we we're talking about in verse 12. You might think that because I was in jail, most of the brothers and sisters in church, they got scared. They got intimidated. They just kind of, they just said, ooh, I got to lay low. And so we might expect to think, ever since I went to jail, most of my fellow workers here have kind of laid low and they're not doing so much. Just the opposite. The brothers and sisters have gotten busy. They've gotten excited. And so... Uh, Trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, and this is almost ironic, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. Well, who wants that? Okay. And why does that work? You know, I mean, how does that motivate him? It, it is, clearly. They're, they're envy and strife? They're looking at this, they're thinking, hey, 
Paul's in jail. Now's my chance. Right? You know? You know, that, that, that know-it-all, he never lets me preach, so now, uh, now he's in jail and he can't stop me. Or whatever the case may be. All right? Um, it's, it's not a good motivation. Others, some also, from goodwill. That's the better motivation. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. And isn't that what he was praying for? That their, that their love would abound in real knowledge and discernment? That's, that was exactly what he was praying for, and it's already happening for some of them. The former, uh, so they do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Can you imagine? What kind of a twisted purpose do you have in that? Thinking, you know, what, what, you know you're going you're to upset Paul? Paul's going to be in distress? Paul's going to be broken hearted? You know, and in, is it a numbers thing? Is it a, what is it? You know? Remember when the, the disciples of John the Baptist were all bent out of shape because there were more disciples following Jesus and there were fewer that were following John? And they, they thought it was a problem? And they said, hey, you know, that guy you were telling us about, there's more people following him and not so many are following you anymore. Okay? Except for us, of course. We're still following you. We're the good ones. You know, and, and you think... And John the Baptist said, no, that's great. He must increase, I must decrease. I thought it was a great thing. But other people, though, they think it's a terrible thing. If, uh, you know, our parking lot's kind of thin lately and then their parking lot's busting out. And In fact, the church across the street asks, hey, can we use your parking lot when we overflow? Because we notice you got tons of empty spaces there. You're not, <laughs> you know, is that a problem? Some to be sure, Okay thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. And, you know, when all was said and done, Paul just kind of laughed about it. He said, oh well, you know, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. You know, it's a bad thing. Sure, they're doing it for the wrong reasons, but you know what? Christ is being proclaimed, so hey, I won't complain about that. And, uh, you know, if somebody else uh, you know, Christ is in charge. Is he, is he not head of the church? Can he, does he have a handle on what's happening here? I think he is. So anyway, this goes to action. We're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about what do we respond to if we see ministry taking off? What do we respond to in our own ministry and why? Right reasons or wrong reasons? And what are we trying to accomplish? If somebody is, is uh, bearing fruit for the kingdom, do we take that as a challenge? Do we take that as an insult? Is that a benchmark? Do I want to, I'm going to top that? Why? What am I doing? Okay. What becomes a goad? Why does it become a goad? And, and can I cross a line and take that too far? So we'll deal with that. Lord willing and rapture pending is what we'll pick up with Sunday morning. Father, I thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. We call upon your faithfulness, Father, to make these scriptures very clear to each one of us. We want to make the applications ourselves in our own, in our own, um, day and age in our own localities where we are and what we're doing for the right reasons father for your glory i thank you in jesus christ's name amen